Transform your investment strategy with the MD Platinum Global Private Equity 2023 Trust. This unique offering exclusive to physician families uses non-traditional strategies that allow you to diversify your portfolio and potentially help grow your wealth over the long term. With access to institutional level private equity opportunities, this solution could be what you need to help you meet your financial goals. Learn more about this limited time opportunity at mb.ca slash private equity. Welcome to a special episode of the MD Market Watch podcast. I'm your host, Alex Chung, content manager with MD Financial Management. This special episode is a playback of a conversation with the portfolio management team about recent performance and performance expectations. Hosted by Kelly Costigan, Pick Portfolio Manager, this episode features Wesley Blight, Mark Fairbairn, and Richard Schmidt of the Multi-Asset Management Team. Please enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to be here today. My name is Kelly Costigan. I'm a client-facing portfolio manager that has been with MD Private Investment Council for the last 23 years. My focus is on helping physicians achieve their financial goals. In doing so, I have the full support of many diverse teams, one of which is 1832 Asset Management. The purpose of our call today is to provide MD advisors with clear, confidence-inspiring speaking points to the questions being asked by clients and prospects. More importantly, investors are likely unhappy with recent results, and we believe that now is a great time to lever the strength of MD's peer relative results and gather assets. Today, we are joined by Wes Blight. Wes is a portfolio manager with a focus on multi-asset portfolios. He began work in the industry in 2002 and joined MD Financial Management and its related companies in 2004. Mark Fairbairn is a portfolio manager with a focus on non-North American equities and leads currency management decisions on this team. He joined MD Financial and its related companies in 2006. And last but not least, Richard Schmidt is an associate portfolio manager whose focus is on North American equities. He joined MD Financial Management and its related companies in 2011. Well, gentlemen, let's talk performance. We saw drawdowns in both equities and fixed income in 2022. How did this impact portfolio performance? Well, we... um... We measure performance in three different ways. When we're communicating with clients, when we're communicating with the committees that we report into, when we communicate with advisors, it's always about these three different lenses. And last year was tremendously difficult for realized results. So 2022 was extremely challenging from a fixed income perspective. It was also challenging from an equity perspective. When we step back and look at it across the three measures, our ultimate objective is to be top third against our Morningstar peers. Across the continuum of the three ways that we measure performance, we look at performance relative to our long-term capital market assumptions. Then we look at performance relative to benchmarks. And then finally, we look at performance relative to our peers. And that last piece around relative to peers is really our ultimate objective. We do try and be top third over rolling three-year periods. In 2022 specifically, the first half of the year was extremely challenged with both stocks and bonds drawing down meaningfully. And that was so pervasive to long-term results that it pulled the performance over a three-year period below our long-term capital market assumptions. That was largely because bond yields rose so much that caused bond prices to fall and also created some challenging circumstances around equities and that people were starting to think that earnings growth was not going to be as robust as it had been for the last little while because financial conditions were tightening so much. So 
when we're thinking about long-term capital market assumptions and our performance relative to those, we don't necessarily control it because it's more about the market and how the market has been performing. But it's super important from a client perspective because those are the inputs to the long-term financial plan. It's also the inputs to how we go about creating our SAA. The next layer is looking at it relative to our benchmarks. And we appreciate the value of choice for our clients and that they can fulfill their portfolios with either active or passive fulfillment. And we love to take advantage of that. So we take advantage of active and passive across our portfolios. And we recognize that by having active in our portfolios, there's an opportunity for enhanced performance from a return perspective. And there's also an ability to manage the risk a little bit differently than how you have passive fulfillment. And in 2022, even though bonds were drawing down so significantly, particularly in the first half of the year, we were able to preserve a lot of capital by having less interest rate risk than our benchmark. So that was helping to preserve capital in the first half of the year. Fantastic result there on a relative to benchmark perspective. But thinking back to what I mentioned earlier, relative to our long-term assumptions, not great. Then in the second half of the year, fixed income was flat and actually slightly positive. And we were similarly able to outperform because of that active component relative to the passive fulfillment in fixed income specifically. Then on the equity side, active fulfillment was supported by strong performance from the value style investing exposure that we had, but that was more than offset by growth exposure that we had benefited from in 2021 and 2020, 2020 as well. Uh, but in 2022, we didn't get that same benefit from growth style active performance having to perform. Then the last layer is relative to peers. So if you're thinking about this from a client perspective, one relative to your long-term capital market assumptions, how did I do relative to my client, my header behind? Then you're looking at it, okay, relative to passive fulfillment. Am I a header behind as a result of having active exposure? Well, if I'm up behind on my active exposure relative to passive, where else can I go? And that's where the peer relative piece comes into play. And this is where I think in 2022, we did tremendously well, particularly on the fixed income side of things. It was clearly an area of strong performance for the MD portfolios. And then finally, on the more equity-oriented portfolios, those are more aligned with the median peer in 2022 and year-to-date as well. We've actually gotten a bit of a, a nice benefit year-to-date so far from great strength. All told, a really good result. Thank you for that, uh, Wes, particularly because I can, I can understand that you're measuring success when it comes to different areas and all those conversations around those topics are excellent for advisors to be able to talk to clients about those because generally clients will look at a number and even if the number has been minus 5%, but relative to other areas we're shooting the lights out, it's a great story and that has to be said. Could you explain our long-term performance assumptions, how they're established and what we use them for? Sure. So that's an annual process that we go through and we're targeting specifically a 10-year outlook based on key drivers of stock and bond returns and also risk. So we're really looking at 10-year outlook for market performance. And for bonds, the majority of that assumed return is coming from the starting yield. And for equities, it comes from a mix of dividends, earnings, growth, inflation and valuation. Okay. Thank you. Focusing specifically on U.S. equities, why has performance trailed the benchmark? Sure. Thanks, Kelly. Um, unfortunately, there's not one thing to point to, but if I was to pick one by far through time, the narrow leadership of Lunas would be it. 
For a Canadian investor, the cumulative return over the past 10 years for the S&P 500 was 320%. Now, say you bought the S&P 490, so you bought everything but the top 10 names, your cumulative returns would have dropped by over 100%. Now, you might think, okay, so just buy the top 10. There you go, guaranteed outperformance. But these top 10 do cycle. So the top 10 companies in this decade have not and may not be the top 10 in the next decade. So to summarize that, for us, the challenge really has been we don't want to over-concentrate our solutions in just a few names where you run the risk that something goes wrong in your investment and it's just overly represented in our client portfolios. And there's also just a lot of great companies outside these top 10 that you do want to own in your portfolio. Now, what we have done through time, because we do have lower risk than the benchmark, is we're able to have more U.S. equity in the portfolio than if our U.S. equity solutions had more risk. And although our relative returns haven't been stellar, the absolute returns have been substantial. Thus, even if you're lagging a bit from a relative standpoint, if you take less risk, which allows you to have a bigger weight, your total portfolio returns will be stronger if you get that, that equity risk premium there. And then that last piece that Wes mentioned ahead, that peer relative. So if you look over the long term, our, our empty PIM US equity pool looks extremely strong against all of our competitors with virtually any competitor that has done better than us, loading up on a ton of risk and definitely in the most recent environment, really being challenged by that kind of extra risk they took in their portfolio. Thank you, Richard. Again, that'll help us quite a bit with respect to explaining to clients on how U.S. equity particularly is run when a client might just be looking at plain numbers. Because the reality is when, when client-facing portfolio managers are sitting with clients, clients don't necessarily have a detailed understanding of what's going on behind the scenes and what success is measured by. So I, I appreciate that. So Mark, to get you involved in the conversation, I was wondering what the benefit of including emerging market equity exposure in our portfolios would be. Sure, thanks. Emerging markets adds exposure to fast-growing economies, which provides the opportunity to improve return. Admittedly, it may not seem like that, as recent years have seen lackluster returns on emerging markets, especially relative to developed markets, and in particular, U.S. equities. On a forward-looking basis, emerging markets do offer higher expected growth and discounted valuations, which should set the stage for better long-term returns. So why has emerging markets disappointed over the past 10 years? Well, if you go back early 2000s, there was a lot of hype around emerging markets and the growth. You all remember the term BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and how their share of the global economy would grow to dwarf developed markets. Those predictions weren't entirely correct. China did really well. India is doing well. Russia is not even in the benchmark anymore for the, the events in the war. But even prior to that, wasn't really developing as strongly as the expectations are on that. But more than that, it's really the excitement around the asset class at the time had bid it up. It had become relatively expensive. Typically, it should trade at a discount to developed markets because it does exhibit a higher volatility, but that discount had really compressed. Then you take on that high expectation with disappointing growth in the company level or the index level, and you see underperformance. For the 10 years from December 2002 to December 2012, emerging markets outperformed the developed markets by over 8% annualized. And at that time, developed markets had a weak return. However, the 10 years that followed that, the one that's most recent, emerging markets have underperformed by about 11%. Really, it's that higher valuation and that disappointment has weighed on returns of emerging markets over this period. 
So now, after 10 years of underperformance, you have emerging markets trading at discount and developed markets trading at higher valuations. To be clear, the risks are higher in emerging markets, but that's part of the reason that you have the elevated discount that you're seeing today. And that sets the asset class up to do well over the next 10 years. It is also worth noting that while equity returns have underwhelmed, economically, emerging markets as a holistic set of countries and economies have become considerably larger in their scope and global influence and actually account for the majority of global GDP. Consumer trends are no longer driven solely by developed markets. Emerging markets are critical even for developed market companies, either from their supply chains and even their end customers. So I'd argue emerging markets is not an asset class you can really ignore. It's increasingly a core part of a global allocation as opposed to a niche asset class. Thank you, Mark. Could you touch on uh, what our approach is to investing in emerging markets? Our approach to investing in emerging markets is similar it is to our other asset classes. So we go through a core fulfillment, blending different styles and different approaches with a multi-manager solution to really get the diversification across the asset class. I'm going to change gears here. Interest rates have risen historically, quickly making GICs appear more attractive, especially given the recent performance of fixed income. Should we be considering GICs? Wes, maybe you can take this one as the fixed income guru. <laughs> I do spend a fair bit of time on fixed income and enjoy it. <laughs> you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with GICs being part of a portfolio by any stretch. We actively consider them as part of our opportunity set. It's just, I think if we're considering the environment that we just went through, it would have been better to have GICs as part of the portfolio at the start of 2022 than it would be right now. They do offer some challenges from a liquidity perspective, so it's harder to rebalance around a GIC, especially as market environments change. They don't participate in environments when yields decline. When we step back and think about what I talked about earlier around our long-term capital market assumptions, part of what's embedded in those capital market assumptions and change in yield. And the ability to actually participate in that change in yield is significantly more pronounced in bonds than it is in GICs. So, if you think about yield changes and yields coming down from where they are right now, that's going to actually add to capital appreciation from fixed income, and you don't get that participation in GICs. And historically speaking, after times of stress where interest rates rise rapidly and bond prices fall dramatically, you usually get a recovery after that. And that's the opportunity to try and add value from being invested in bonds relative to GICs. And I think that's the tricky part to talk to clients about because the experience you've just been through has been so disproportionately disconnected from what you're used to experiencing in fixed income. And you just think, oh, wow, look at the, look at the yield that you're getting on GIC. The yield on bonds is the same, if not better than the yields that are in GICs, plus you get the opportunity to add value from capital appreciation and all the other benefits that go with having fixed income as part of a portfolio. You're bang on and talking to clients and it is all about education. And, uh, and usually fear draws people to GICs because they can see it, they can see the return and they don't understand that you don't necessarily get liquidity and can take advantage of the movement in a, in a bond, which is certainly marketable. Thank you. What purpose, Wes, actually, if I keep with you, what purpose does fixed income serve in a portfolio? So we think about it in three ways. One would be capital preservation. Two would be reduced volatility at the portfolio level. And then three would be enhanced income. 
And if you step back and think about constructing a fixed income portfolio, the easiest part is to go and get the enhanced income. You just go buy things that have a higher yield. The hard part is the capital preservation piece. And then the other hard part would be the reduction of volatility. 2022 was a significant disconnect from what investors are used to seeing. And it's actually the rise of interest rates, the rise of bond yields as interest rates were predicted to increase. So if you really step back and think of the environment that we were in in 2020, 2021, you had the prospect of inflation starting to flow through markets expectations. Those market expectations translated into an assumption that central banks were going to start raising rates and raise rates aggressively. And as a result of that, bond yields started to move up aggressively ahead of central banks raising their interest rates. As those interest rates rose, bond yields continued to rise. That caused a big drawdown in bonds. It also caused a big drawdown on equities. So that correlation of both asset classes drawing down at the same time is exceedingly rare. If you look back to the 1970s, only 8% of rolling quarters. Did you see that correlation be positive, but both asset classes were drawing down? Normally, you get both moving up at the same time, or if you do get one falling, the other one's usually uh, adding value. In 2022, that didn't happen. Part of the purpose for what you would assume from having fixed income in your portfolios wasn't realized last year. And that's where I think what I was talking about earlier around our focus on preservation of capital within fixed income, being able to actively manage the duration and interest rate risk exposure is what added some value to our client portfolios last year by helping to preserve that capital. The other piece that I think is important is you may get the question, why didn't you just go to cash? Mm-hmm. Um, Surprisingly, Wes, we do. <laughs> we do have cash in our portfolios, but we're not going to make a tactical decision that's so significant that has the ability to pull a client away from their long-term investment objective. And always refer back to this Dalbar survey in the U.S., and it looks at every single asset class that a client could have exposure to over a pretty long time horizon. Then it looks at an inflation. Then it looks at the average client. The average client doesn't have a return that meets inflation, and they don't have a return that meets any of the individual asset classes in isolation. So what that means is average client is turning their portfolio over and over and over again. We're subject to those same biases. So if we moved the portfolio into cash, got it wrong, we would have the same result as that average client. That's not what we're trying to do. So we don't want to make a tactical decision that pulls the client away from their ability to realize their long-term objective. And that's key for why we didn't move a larger portion of the portfolio to cash in 2022. Which is a perfect reason on why front-facing portfolio managers speak to clients about the long-term assumptions in their strategic plan, which is what really they're looking to accomplish apart from short-term moves. Wes, I'll stay with you. Going forward, what do we expect from fixed income? So I think if you reflect back on our long-term capital market assumptions that we, we talked to advisors about in January, we expect the return to be significantly higher going forward from fixed income compared to our previous assumptions, certainly higher than the experience we had in 2022. But if you look back to our 10-year return assumptions that we've been doing since 2018, our assumptions right now are the strongest for fixed income that they've been at any point in history. And the reason for that is the starting bond yield is so significantly higher. And that is the key driver to 
long-term return assumptions for fixed income. So we think that from a return perspective, meaningfully better contributions to portfolio outcomes than what has been experienced in 2022 and better than what we've experienced over the last number of short years. I guess all years are the same length of time. But <laughs> to me, that that is probably the most meaningful takeaway from all of this is that portfolios are better positioned to realize their long-term investment objectives today than they have been at any point in the last couple of years. Well, that's some good news for yeah. sure. That's a great answer on the fixed income and, and our expectations on performance going forward. Well, Richard, what about the equity side? Sure. Thank you, Kelly. On the equity side, the dividend solutions we have are doing what they should be doing. They're generating a high dividend yield in Canadian equities with a lower risk on the benchmark. Should any further weakness materialize in equities, I believe you can have a strong expectations that our dividend solutions will hold up very well. Looking across the core Canadian equity solutions we have, I think we expect the, the recent performance strength to continue there. At the time of this recording over the past year, we're over 3% ahead of our benchmark and almost 2% ahead over the first few months of the year. Our underweight to banks there is paying off well in the most recent environment. Also, as we were speaking to and as kind of what we expected there, energy markets have come off their highs, while the quality growth names in the portfolio are being reappreciated by the market. Looking out, we truly do believe the names we're holding in the MD PIM Canadian Equity Bowl will weather any slowdown quite well, be possessed on the other side to perform quite strongly. Looking at our foreign equity solutions, we've got all the solutions we need to do well. We've got expert teams picking the best companies they can at the cheapest valuations you can find. And, and coupled with them, we've got other teams of experts combing through the globe, finding the highest growing future market leaders. Looking out now that we've seen the end of free money, all the higher rates that Wes has been speaking to, I really do think you're going to start to see a lot more winners across different industries than what we had seen since the end of the global financial crisis. Gone are the days where any project that makes $1 is profitable. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Mark, I'm going to try to get you into the conversation again, my friend. What are we doing to best position our clients going forward? Sure. So we are currently defensive in our tactical views with a modest underway to equities. We don't see a deep or long recession as a base case, but there are clearly risks. Rates have risen sharply and the impact of these reverberating through the economy with an uncertain lag and high inflation constrains policymakers to stimulate the economy if weakness does arise. Valuations aren't cheap and high interest rates will be a headwind for price earnings multiples to move significantly higher, leaving it to corporate profits as the driver for equity returns. But in a slowing economy with high interest rates and now the increased probability of a lending slowdown suggests that a strong surge in corporate profits is unlikely, hence our conservative stance. But while equities don't look compelling on a tactical basis right now, it's not all doom and gloom. As we don't see a deep recession, we do like corporate bonds and are overweight there. High interest rates and wide credit spreads do look compelling on a total return basis, prospectively, with more certainty than the equity outlook. Good. Maybe I could bring this out to, or put it out to all of you. If I was a client and I asked you, what should I be doing now? How would you answer? To be honest, I would just say stick with your plan. Stick with your financial plan. Don't be worried about, is there going to be a recession this year, a recession next year? If you get a recession and asset prices go down, you'll get to contribute your investments at a better discounted value that's going to improve your long-term return. And if you don't get recession and they go up, you would have had that missed that opportunity. Look out over a 20-year, 30-year investment horizon. What's going to happen in the next year or two won't matter that much. 
Uh, the key point will just be to stick with your plan and continue to contribute as you would and go about your day-to-day -day life and not be too worried about your investments. That's what you have less for. I love it. I, I don't know if there's a whole lot to add. I think the portfolios are constructed to be robust. Agreed. I think they hit the nail on the head. Stay the course. Stay the course. Okay. Well, everybody, we certainly hope you gained some insight from our discussion today. The information was intended to help you understand the intricacies of managing a multi-asset portfolio and how it drives long-term returns. As always, if you have any questions about what we spoke about today, questions about your portfolio, please don't be shy. Reach out to an MD advisor. Whether you're a client or not, we're here to help. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider and check out our other market commentary content available on md.ca. You'll find blog posts, videos, and much more. Last but not least, thank you for listening to the MD Market Watch podcast, and thank you to all the doctors and healthcare professionals out there for taking care of us at this time. Bye, everybody. Thank you.